0: On this final Sunday of our summer series, Summer Mixtape, we've been telling some of the great stories of faith this summer. Hear this story of healing from the book of Acts, the third chapter. Listen now to a word from God. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man crippled from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John. And said, look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet And ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord. Our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I was flying home from seminary for the weekend to spend a few days with my family, and like the majority of people who choose window seats on flights, I hoped to spend the time quietly reflecting on the meaning of life. This flight did not go according to plan. During takeoff, I pulled out a seminary textbook from my backpack and I held it in my lap with the intention of doing some reading, but of course, I drifted into a light slumber until the flight attendant came around to take the drink orders. I'd completely forgotten about the book on my lap when I woke up, but the man in the middle seat, clearly looking for a good time to make his presence known, said in all sincerity, You're reading a book about my favorite person. Confused, I looked down to re-examine the book, which I hadn't started. The title read, Prophet and Teacher, an Introduction to the Historical Jesus. I had to stifle a chuckle because I thought he was kidding. But I met his glance and realized he was very serious. And what followed was a fiery discourse about Jesus from the man in the middle seat. A man whose theological and Christological beliefs were very different than my own. After some time, the man interrupted his own monologue as if he had suddenly realized that I was still there.
1: (laughs) And and curiously
0: asked me, so what do you do for a living anyway? When you're a woman in ministry, you learn that this is a very loaded question. Each time it's asked of you, you are confronted with this moment, this question of whether or not to be totally truthful. This being the first time I had been asked the question since starting seminary, I decided to be honest. I took a deep breath, and I looked over at the man and said, well, I'm actually in seminary right now, and I'm hoping to be ordained as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. The man bristled. "'Oh,' he said, looking down at his hands. "'Well, I don't believe in female pastors.'" (laughs) "'As if I were a unicorn.'" (laughs) "'Or Santa Claus or the Loch Ness Monster.'" "'I suppose if this man were here today and said the same thing, I'd say, "'Well, I'm standing right in front of you. Do you believe in me now?' Needless to say, this exchange completely killed our conversation. And after a few moments of incredibly awkward silence, thanks be to God, the flight attendant came around with our drinks, and I put my earbuds in, and I stuck the book back in my bag, and I resumed staring out the window. When the plane landed, we both hurried off into different directions, ready to forget the entire encounter. What do you do for a living? seems to be the favorite icebreaker on airplanes, at cocktail parties. How many times have you been asked this question by a complete stranger, and how do you choose to answer it? And why is it that the first thing we want to know about a person is their job title or how they earn a paycheck? Perhaps it's because our identities are so bound up in our work. A 2014 Gallup Poll showed that more than half of workers in the United States define themselves based on their job. And we all hope to be valued and recognized for the jobs we do, for the hours we put in, and the things we produce. And yet, each of us has an identity beyond our job or our former job beyond how we earn a paycheck or what we put on a resume, as people who seek to follow Christ, perhaps the question worth asking ourselves is, what is our life's labor? I think this is the question that Peter and John are considering when we meet them in this passage in the book of Acts. Along with the entire community, they're wrestling with how to spend their time in the world. They're trying to decide what to do, where to put their energy. The book of Acts is one of my favorites in the scriptural canon because it records the day-in, day-out lives of early Christians after Jesus is no longer physically present. It's the first glimpse of, that we get of the disciples figuring out how to do life, how to embody all that Jesus has modeled for them, how to be Christians. And this third chapter of Acts is really the beginning of the action. You see, the resurrected Christ has just ascended into heaven, leaving very few instructions for the disciples who are fearful and uncertain in his absence. But luckily, the Holy Spirit shows up on Pentecost to revive the community and to send the disciples back into the world. But to do what exactly? There's not really a disciple job description to pass out to interested candidates. Perhaps this is where the WWJD bracelets originated because crowds of disciples were just sitting around wondering, what would Jesus do? What are we supposed to do? Peter and John are discussing this very thing as they walk to the temple that afternoon. What would Jesus want us to do with our time, they wonder. And it's in this wondering moment that the two spot the paralyzed man being carried to his usual spot outside the beautiful gate. This is a man who has spent the entirety of his life relying upon other people to carry him to the exterior of this most holy place so he can receive money. All the while never being allowed inside the walls due to his paralysis. It's likely that Peter and John have seen this man before, this man who in his transactions with almsgivers has somehow scraped together sufficient funds to survive. And it's likely that Peter and John have given alms to this man previously because the Jewish tradition highly valued such charity. And on this particular day, it would have been easy to repeat the transaction, to drop a few coins into the man's open hands without much thought. But something happens to Peter and John, and they choose to respond differently than they ever have before. Do you have a few coins to spare? I imagine him saying in a tone of voice that politely cuts through the chatter near the temple gate. Other men are passing by, briskly, keeping their heads pointed inward as they drop coins near the man's feet. But suddenly, Peter cuts off his conversation and stops. And John, trailing Peter closely, nearly stumbles over his feet before following Peter's gaze to the man. Look at us, Peter says, excitedly. Look! And the man looks up, expecting to see a few more coins waiting for him. But instead, he meets the eyes of two men who are beaming with nervous energy, as if they've had a sudden epiphany. There's no pity to be found in this gaze. There's no judgment, no feigned sympathy. The man feels overwhelmingly known and seen, as if for once he is not a beggar, but an equal. He's never known this warm gaze of dignity. And the man has no time to be disappointed by Peter and John's lack of money because in a matter of seconds, Peter reaches out to pull him upward. And he's standing on ankles that long ago failed him, putting one foot in front of the other, dancing across the threshold of the temple that he has never been allowed into. He is standing, laughing, and dancing before he has any time to wonder how the name of a dead man gave him the power to walk. This, this moment, this is the first thing that the disciples do publicly in the book of Acts. This moment of joy, of miraculous transformation, this moment in which a man is not only physically healed, but is granted access into a place he has never been welcomed, This is the first act of acts. The very first public act after Jesus' ascension is an act of healing. And prior to this encounter, only Jesus has shown the power to heal. And now all of a sudden, these ordinary, uneducated fishermen have the same ability. In this one interaction, the disciples' path forward becomes clear. Their calling has been made evident. Their labor is to heal. They are called to be healers in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and everything else proceeds from this healing. They will preach and testify and evangelize, they will confront the powers that be, and they will face persecution. But throughout the book of Acts, a long and winding narrative recalling decades of ministry, healing is the primary act of the disciples, from which all other things proceed. Each act of healing takes place a little differently, but the results are always similar. Dignity is shared among people. Transformation occurs for both the healer and the healed. New access is granted as barriers come down, and the church grows more inclusive and expansive. Dignity, transformation, access, inclusivity. And so it is that these acts of healing are more radical than any sermons preached. These acts of healing are radical because they disrupt the status quo. You see, it's difficult to move throughout a society without attracting attention when you are consistently showing dignity to the downtrodden, transforming lives, granting access to forgotten populations, and including the marginalized. If we keep reading, we see that this particular healing outside the temple in chapter 3 is what lands Peter and John before the Sanhedrin for the first time. The same council that played a large part in sending Jesus to his death. And yet, even when the stakes are high, this radical ministry of healing is the labor that the disciples choose. Because for them, to heal is to embody all that Jesus taught them. In healing bodies and uplifting spirits and welcoming people into the community, the disciples find a way to reconstitute Jesus' broken and resurrected body into the body of Christ. This is the labor of their lives. And if we consider ourselves followers of Christ, empowered by the same Holy Spirit who blew through the upper room on Pentecost, then we too are called to heal. We are called to be healers in this world that is so desperately in need of mending. We are called to arrange and rearrange our lives so that everything we do proceeds from acts of healing. Healing is the labor of our lives. I'm guessing you already know what this means for you that you are more than aware of places in your life, in your family, in the world that are in desperate need of dignity, transformation, access, and inclusivity. Where are you being called to look someone in the eye, to extend a hand and pull someone up, to knock down the barriers that keep people out, to create a space for someone around a table or in your pew And collectively, what would it look like if our community was acting first and foremost to heal this world? I think we might find ourselves looking into the eyes of refugees and migrants, granting them dignity and humanity and refusing to see them as numbers, holding space for all children of God to share their stories. I think we might find ourselves more readily reaching our hands out to those who are grieving or suffering to offer more than a transaction more than a few coins worth of sympathy i think we might find ourselves exploring gender identity and sexuality asking people to share their pronouns rather than making assumptions and seeking to knock down the binaries and the prejudices that keep us from loving people for exactly who god created them to be I think we might begin to live into a vision of the world where every single person has a seat saved just for them at the table of grace friends we are called to arrange and rearrange our lives so that everything we do proceeds from acts of healing healing is the labor of our lives and if we truly commit ourselves to this labor there is no doubt That we will disrupt the status quo. There's no doubt that these results will go unnoticed. I sometimes wonder what would have happened on that flight if I had had the courage to meet the eyes of the man in the middle seat. I wonder if there was a moment for transformation that we both missed, a point at which healing, even just the smallest bit of healing, might have occurred. I wonder if together we could have removed just a few of the bricks in the barriers that stood between us. And I regret that I will never know the joy of that particular transformation, that I will never experience the amazement and wonder of healing the wounds that both of us carried into that horribly uncomfortable encounter. And yet, Even when we miss opportunities, Jesus continues to lead us to situations and people who need healing. And Jesus leads healers into our lives to show us dignity and bring about transformation when we need it most. We are called to be healers. This is the labor of our lives. May it be so. Amen.